rice noodles. Or rather, computer scans of rice noodles are now a part of a visualization tool for displaying output from data-intensive calculations. I think in a way our project asks, you know, well, what if we go back to the beginning and even the visual language we use to express science, we adjust so that there is evidence of the human hand in that visual language. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, blending the languages of science and art. I'm Robert Frederick. Have you ever seen a computer visualization that is so crammed full of information, representing so many kinds of data, that the visualization is hard to make sense of? In an effort to see all the data that scientists need to try to understand, say the dynamic processes inside a cloud, or to follow a simulation of magma churning beneath a volcano, or to help locate the swirl of nutrients and minerals in a large body of water that provide a good habitat for algae, computer visualizations can end up being so packed full of visual elements that they end up being really hard to interpret. It makes for a kind of visual cacophony. So, many data visualization specialists have been working on ways so that the data is clearer or easier for us to understand and so that we're able to better pick out patterns, trends, or outliers. Dan Keefe and Francesca Samsel are perhaps unique in their efforts to do just that. Francesca Samsel, I'm at the University of Texas at Austin with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Or TAC. And I'm a research scientist in the visualization area. My name is Dan Keefe, and I'm an associate professor in uh, the Computer Science and Engineering Department at the University of Minnesota. And my research is on uh, data visualization and virtual reality. Together with their colleagues, they are creating a new set of visualization libraries and tools inspired by nature and objects, including rice noodles. The idea is to use these new tools to capture subtleties, subtleties of color or shape, for example, that can convey additional data, but without becoming visually overwhelming. The unveiling of one of their visualizations on the biogeochemistry of the Gulf of Mexico, was supposed to take place at this year's South by Southwest Festival, but was postponed because of the coronavirus pandemic. You'll find a version of it and can read more about it on our website, americanscientist.org, as well as find links back to their team's website. Here's our interview, which I started by asking them how they met one another. Dan started uh, something at Viz called VizApp, which is now a very growing concern. And it's um, the IEEE Viz Conference, which is our main conference, which is the Visualizations Community's main conference. He started an art program there. And um, I had just started working, because my training is an artist. I mean, that's where my, my bones and my 30 years of, of, of work have been. And I w- had been producing some things in the uh, visualization lab at TAC that had some of um, imagery from prints and drawings and whatnot, along with some uh, visualization specifically related to, this was a while ago, the um, Deep Horizons oil spill. And uh, so I submitted that to his, his, um, his brand new program. And that's when we met and I kind of scratched my head and said, this is a pretty interesting guy. And I guess he must have thought the same. And so we, we just sort of started talking over the years. And then we started talking once a month. And then we started talking about what we might do together. And so it evolved from there. 
Now, as I understand it, each of you is an artist who uses computer visualizations creatively. Have you practiced or do you still practice art in other media? Dan, how about you? Yeah, so Robert, my story is, you know, I've always been interested in art and technology. Um, my mother's an artist. Uh, my dad's a, a professor and researcher. And I went to college to study computer engineering, but I was taking, you know, as many oil painting classes as I possibly could. And I remember my professor of oil painting said, well, you don't use color like an engineer. <laughs> and, and it was sort of like a different you know, there's a different skill set. And uh, what really sort of helped me find my path was that um, one of my professors sent me to do an internship over the summer at, at NASA's data visualization and animation wow. studio. And I discovered computer graphics and how you can make, um, and virtual reality as well. And and this just was like, wow, this is the epitome of combining these two interests, the very uh, amazing visuals in a medium that, you know, I can't do, that I can't create with paint or uh, printmaking or things like that. And yet the, the chance to do something technical where that technical knowledge is all in service of, of creating the visual. And so, so that really got me hooked. And I then um, just throughout my career, I've sort of continued to combine art and technology and science and, and look for those intersections and try to find ways where there are win-win collaborations between the arts and the science. So it's not just art in service of science, you know, but it's science also informing the art and that it's a two-way street. And so uh, we must have one of the only National Science Foundation grants where, you know, one of the principal investigators is a professional artist, you yeah. know, and that is special. It's special because we are not dumbing down the art, you know, I mean, it really is, it really is sort of a, a an equal footing. It's an extremely special collaboration because it's like, I work with a lot of scientists who have a lot of respect for what I do. Some that had respect when I started and some that gained it once they saw the contributions I could make. But Dan is different in that there's an underlying understanding about, uh, a deeper understanding about the process of making art and what's involved and what comes out of it and, um, and its value. And so to have a partner that really uh, understands that is extremely rare. I feel so fortunate. And so that's what is, I think has enabled me, you know, uh, as an artist, like trying to work in what is pretty much all a scientific field where everyone speaks math and, and everyone speaks in a linear fashion. You know, it's really hard to maintain your own voice and your own way of thinking. And so um, Dan has been, works as a translator actually mm. between uh, like, <laughs> when his students are like, what the heck is she talking about? You know, <laughs> he, he's our I translator. I do do a lot of translating, yes. <laughs> yes, and the translation <laughs> is critical. It's a critical, absolutely critical, because uh, I do speak a different language, and I work hard to try and uh, tone it in a direction that will be understandable, but uh, there are limits. And, um, and so even that process of understanding what does and doesn't need to be translated is interesting. 
and reflects on where we go. Is the overall nature of this project, this NSF-funded project, the idea to help scientists become at least more artistic in rendering their scientific data? Hmm. Well, so that was interesting. You might get two different answers a little bit. So let me give this to Adam, and then I'll turn it over to Dan, okay? Okay. So, you know, we live in a world of specialty. I've been moving around color, line, shape, and form for longer than I care to admit now. And so I bring a skill to the table and an expertise to the table that is not reasonable to ask of scientists or of computer scientists or anybody else. And graphic designers are the same. And visualization is how we access a lot of science. And it's getting more and more complex. But the language in which we communicate that science in visualization is extremely limited. And what artists do is they build visual languages and build visual syntax. And so what Dan is, you know, he, Dan understands that, wow, there's other expertise here. And that the scientific community, as well as kind of the uh, humanities connection, could benefit from an artistic vocabulary. And, and what they've done, and what Dan has really done, is translated between my needs and how we could put the data and put like the, the things that we're making and the visual encodings in a language that's native to me and that can be applied to data. I think that that's the value to the scientific community, but the scientific community has another problem. And that is how do you speak to, I say speak to the public, but often it's just the scientist three doors down who's in a different domain. How do you make that communication? I mean, you think about all the uh, talent and expertise that goes into visual communication. Well, the scientists are trained in algorithms and like how waves work. You can't expect them to also be trained in something else that's not reasonable. And so it's really about enabling a combined expertise. So it's, it's speaking to other scientists also, but then there's another piece. And that is that we're all human beings. And when we look at visualizations and generally they're bright kind of synthetic colors and they're cubes and whatnot, they don't have a human touch to them. And there is something like I, my master's degree is in clay sculpture. <laughs> and there is something about the fingerprint on the data that um, enables an entry to the general public and that enables a translation between what that science is representing and how we absorb the visual images and making some of those links. So I'll let Dan take it from there because I know he has lots of thoughts. You know, I hesitate to answer this question in just one way because it's um, the thing is that I think the like the right answer to this depends so much on um, what the purpose of the visualization is mm -hmm. and who the audience is. And um, as you know, as a writer, that you know, identifying your purpose and your audience is so critical. So, I I think some of the visualizations we are creating um, are very much geared toward a, a general public audience. And and then one of the great benefits here. The standout benefit is the ability to connect with the scientific data at a human level. You know, I mean, we're at a time when there's a lot, you know, science is often under attack. There's confusion. There's misunderstanding about what is happening when a client scientist, scientist presents their data. And often what is lost is the, the human element behind that, the connection to 
society, the connection to people's lives. And so I think in a way our project asks, you know, well, what if we go back to the beginning and even the visual language we use to express science, we adjust so that there is evidence of the human hand in that visual language. What's really beautiful about the things that Dan's team has built is it doesn't dumb down the science. It makes it more complex, but then it's also clearer and it's also more relatable. And it's also something that you want to go understand and you want to dive in because it's a rich, engaging experience. I appreciate that you've each now said that the other is not dumbing down. Like Dan, you said that you've not done, they're not dumbing down the art. And now Francesca, you've said not dumbing down the science. I know we could speak about generalizations for hours, I feel like, but let's talk about the specific, the genesis of the salt chemistry and cultivation project that was supposed to be part of the 2020 South by Southwest Festival and put on hold by the pandemic. What got that started, that particular project? This data is about, uh, it's the bio, they're tracking the biogeochemistry and the currents in the Gulf of Mexico towards the goal of determining where it would be fiscally and practically uh, optimal to grow sargassum for biofuel, okay? So if you just put that on a, on a you know, rainbow color map, that's not very interesting. But if you can show them, here's the sargassum and here are drawings of it, and here are microscopic visions of its cell structure, and here you can give it context, then all of a sudden you've created an engagement and, and that engagement carries over into the visualization and then back again. And it's much more of a dialogue. And what you really hope to have in a work of art is a dialogue with your audience. I'm not telling you something that is not my purpose as an artist. My purpose as an artist is to stimulate your own internal dialogue in a meaningful way. And um, so that's where that came from. I just want to make sure that I understand it because I haven't experienced it myself. Uh, I've only seen a, a couple of pictures. Yeah, we so need let to me explain clarify. this process. We need to explain this process. Okay. Yes. From a, a process standpoint, a very like technical process, what we've created here as a, as a system, like a computer and even just physical world system, is a way for artists to create scientific data visualizations using all the regular tools they would use in their physical art studios. And in, in many senses, this is the technological breakthrough. But it's kind of an interesting one in the sense that the breakthrough is basically, well, go back to what artists always use in real life, you know? And so um, what we've done is we've figured out how to um, use, how to sample from the real world, how to take photographs, scans, we use 3D scanning technologies to scan in and digitize real world forms. And so these are things crafted by an artist, Francesca primarily, and it could be um, items made out of clay. So if I have a, a fluid flow like currents in the ocean that I'm trying to explain, um, you know, typically maybe those are displayed in 3D computer graphics using a little 3D arrow or a cone that you oriented, you know, pointing in the direction of the flow. But that's not the kind of rich visual language that an artist thinks about, right? If you say, what form evokes flow to an artist? What you're going to find is that they go straight to nature, you know, and go ahead and embrace the complexity of form 
natural patterns, you know, sand, windswept sands in the desert, yeah. uh, seaweed left behind <laughs> as a trace of the ocean. I mean, there's going to be a richness of flow, right? Evocative visuals that, that evoke flow. And so what we've said is, well, let's start with that. Start with that richness. And then we abstract from that to you know to simplify and make a little more appropriate to to fit data there's some abstraction but we get that richness from the physical world and so then we scan in these artifacts and our software uses those as the visual building blocks for creating a real data-driven visualization so in other words um the same way you might see in a you remember old you know music videos where you morph between one face and another or other things where the computer is morphing between shapes uh, essentially what we have is a system that allows us to morph between these different artifacts in response to data uh, so you can say here's what this shape should look like when our velocity is zero here's what it should look like when our velocity is 50 here's what it should look like when our velocity is 100 and the computer can uh, translate between those. So it, this is the same process that is used in, in all of you know, computer-generated data visualization, but it's the fact that our building blocks are starting from nature and from that uh, richness. To this particular one, back to that specific again, what were the steps in making this visualization? So, so what we're looking at is biogeochemistry in the ocean. And we're looking at the currents, we're looking at which way the currents flow, and we're looking, this, these are all things like I talk to the scientists and say, what do you wanna see? And they say, well, we need to know, you know where the water is coming from and which direction it's going and how tightly wound is it? Will it contain the sargassum? And then we have carbon, and then we have these three types of nitrates, and we have NO4 and a couple other things. And so I, when I think of those things, like I think about um, just as I'd approach a painting. So if it's an organic form, most organic forms are curvilinear. And so how do I create three different curvilinear forms that you can say, okay, these are all different forms of nitrate. So you visually automatically relate to them. And the beauty of the system is, I think this is really critical to understand, these are complex scenes and you can make sense of them in two dimensions. And you can see a lot more in them than you could in normal visualization. But when you put on those VR goggles, and I am not a fan of VR, I hate to tell you, Dan, but I'm not. When you put on those VR goggles and you see this data, holy smokes, it is right there in front of you. You can see there is the pocket of salinity. There is the temperature moving in this direction. And when that happens, these things disappear. You can see the whole thing laid out in front of you. It's just mind-boggling. I would never, ever, ever have thought that you would get that that level of clarity i've been in caves i've you know all kinds of different other environments but so it's the combination of the more complex but distilled associative visual language with the um technical of being able to sample the data and then with the presentation of of the being able to be rendered in vr and then the most the most recent part that's really critical is is artists are iterators like we throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall and one of Dan's students, um, Richard Herman, has done a fabulous job at creating this interface. It's, it's, it's like I'm in my studio. I just drag something over here and mix it up. What does that look like? Oh, not so good. Okay, let's try something else. And so it's all those pieces together that drive it. 
how can I use these visualization tools that have been developed as part of this project? Do I have to be a member of the community? Do I have to have access to a, a supercomputing center in order for them to be useful at all to me? What do I need? Well, you need this special software we've been developing, but we're um, various, let's see, let's say that it's um, in the progress of being sort of released openly to the com community. So various pieces of it already have been, um, but at the, at the present moment, uh, yes, it's probably a need to contact us and work yeah. with us, but yeah. it's on its way, it's on its way. And what that software allows you to do is, is work again from those physical artifacts. Now, what you can do already and what we're um, pretty excited to be doing as we you know, continue to run um, some tutorials and workshops on, on this process is like uh, work with people to have them create their own visual languages, uh, just as Francesca has done like for this particular piece, also for some, you know, brain imaging, other data sets we've looked at. Uh, she's basically made a custom visual language to depict the data and other folks can get involved in that too. And that's actually one of the great benefits here that you actually, you don't need to be like a graduate level computer science programmer to create these visualizations. So we've been developing um, a library online that people can use. And if they have their own 3D visualization software, they can um, make some use just of those artifacts, mm -hmm. pulling them into their own software. But uh, uh, to do the what what we think is the best presentation of this is really using the virtual reality or augmented reality displays with this custom software we've developed. Um, in part because uh, the you know these building blocks that uh, that start in the physical world um, maintain some of that like physicality and presence when you're in a computing environment that also. Um, is intended to uh, to allow you to feel present with the with the three D graphics. So when you get that real immersive view, the work seems to kind of shine in that environment. The piece at South by Southwest is sort of approximating that in a very widely accessible mode. You know, so um, like a in a projection mode that people that is is somewhat immersive in that it's it surrounds you across two walls. Um, and uh, we see that as a nice balance between, you know, providing a bit of this sort of physically present um, view, um, but it's it's not quite to the the ideal level, you know. Really, is to is to pop into one of these VR headsets where you can uh, really get a first person experience. Yes. Well, Dan Keefe and Francesca Samsel, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yes. That was Dan Keefe of the University of Minnesota and Francesca Samsel of the Texas Advanced Computing Center at the University of Texas at Austin. In the September-October 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine, read more about their visualization tool and see images from their work titled Salt, Chemistry, and Cultivation. It's about the biogeochemistry of the Gulf of Mexico. Online at americanscientist.org, you can see a short video that helps to convey the data via virtual reality. It's in the article titled, A More Universal Language. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi. 
the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.